Hello, it's Tuesday, the 29th of November, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Won j a n g w o President Yoon has issued a government order forcing striking truckers to return to work as a union-backed walkout entered its sixth day. We'll have more in news briefing shortly. We'll also connect with a football journalist in Qatar to discuss South Korea's heartbreaking loss against Ghana in the World Cup. Later, for in-depth, we'll look closer at the OECD lowering South Korea's growth forecast for next year last week. And then coming up on Touch Basin's Hole, we speak to a young Korean-American basketball player currently playing in the WKBL who dreams of playing for Korea one day. Let's begin Korea 24. President Yoon s u n g y e o l has greenlit a government order forcing striking truckers in the cement sector to return to work as we entered day six of the union-backed walkout. The Transport Ministry for the first time invoked the back-to-work order that's already being met with signs of resistance. For more on this and our other headlines of the day, we're joined in the studio by KBS World Radio News Editor Yunus Kim. Yunus, hello. Hello, j a n g o So let's look at that order by President Yoon first. Uh, how did he explain this unprecedented move of ordering the strikers back to work? Right. This is a significant move as such a decree has not been enacted since it came to be in 2004 under the Trucking Transport Business Act. And it makes it a criminal offense should the relevant 2,500 cement truck drivers not abide by it. Some 200 transportation businesses are subject to the order, according to the Transport Ministry. Now, chairing a cabinet meeting on Tuesday morning, President Yoon said the back-to-work order was being issued to prevent the people livelihoods and the economy from suffering heavier damage from the strike. He cited construction and production sites across the country already grinding to a halt due to the suspension of shipments in cements and the steel industries. And he assessed that the current condition could ruin the nation's industrial foundation. The president pointedly denounced the Cargo Truckers Solidarity Union for blocking or attacking truckers who are not participating in the strike saying these are criminal offenses that cannot be tolerated. He stressed that his government will firmly establish law and principle in tackling labor issues and will not make compromises when it comes to illegalities. And what did the transport minister Won Hee-ryong have to say as it was officially uh, his ministry that issued the order? That's right. The Minister of Land, Infrastructure and Transport Won Hee-ryong explained that the order applies to the cement industry only for now, for which normalization was most urgent. The government estimates shipments in the industry have plummeted by up to 95% since the walkout launched last Thursday, causing disruptions at most of the nation's construction sites. Minister Won called on the Cargo Trucker Solidarity Union to call off the strike, stressing that the objective of this order is not to punish the truckers, but to restore the country's distribution network and minimize damage to the economy. Now, truckers and their employers then, who are expected to receive the order on Tuesday, will have until midnight Thursday to stop their group action and return to work. The Umbrella Union, uh, the KCTU, the Korean Confederation of Trade Unions, has called for the Yoon government, though, to immediately retract the order, saying the president's, quote-unquote, erroneous view of labor will only aggravate the situation. 
Yes, so the situation is escalating quickly, and it is one we'll be watching in the coming days. In other news, the president also applied pressure on North Korea, saying that should it move forward with a nuclear test, it would be met with a joint response, quote unquote, not seen in the past. Mm-hmm. This statement came as part of an interview held with Reuters, published on Tuesday. President Yoon also said that if North Korea conducts a new nuclear test, regardless of the type, it would be met with a an unprecedented joint response in lockstep. He also called for China to fulfill its role in dissuading the North from pursuing banned development of nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles. He said Beijing has the capability to influence North Korea's behavior and should exert that influence to convince Pyongyang to halt its weapons development programs, according to Reuters. Moving on, the main opposition Democratic Party has temporarily withheld A plan to submit a motion calling for the dismissal of Interior and Safety Minister Yi Sang Min over uh, the deadly Itaewon crowd crush. So, what do we know? Yeah, so the party initially planned to submit a dismissal motion against the Safety and Interior Minister to the National Assembly on Thursday, pass it during a plenary session on Friday, but it looks like that might be on a pause. DP floor leader Pak Hong-gun telling reporters following Tuesday's general meeting of lawmakers that opinions have converged on the need to take a move to hold the minister accountable on the parliamentary level, but when asked on what kind of move and when it shall be taken. He said it will be decided by taking various matters into account, including the presidential office, the ruling bloc, and parliamentary schedules. In response, the ruling People Power Party said in reaction that it will withhold the move to boycott the ongoing parliamentary inspection into the deadly Itaewon crowd crash. And finally, the state's weather agency has issued cold snap warnings for most parts of the nation, a first since introducing the alert system in 2010. That's right, Burr. Winter is upon us as the thermostat is forecast to plummet from Tuesday night, affecting most parts of the country. The KMA said cold snap alerts will be issued for the central region starting at 6 p.m. on Tuesday and for the southern region from 9 p.m. Morning lows on Wednesday. Wednesday are expected to dip to minus 11 degrees Celsius in Kangwon Province's Cheruan and minus 7 degrees in Seoul, which is some 15 to 20 degrees lower compared to today. A cold snap warning is issued when the morning low is projected to drop by at least 15 degrees Celsius compared to the previous day. An advisory is issued when the temperature falls at least 10 degrees. Okay, we're going to leave it there for part one of our news briefing today because we have a special part two coming up to talk about the gut-wrenching World Cup football loss for South Korea last night. I'm sure you saw it as well, Mm -hmm. Eunice. Yes, so that's all for part one, Eunice. As always, thank you for the updates. You bet. Right, on to part two of our news briefing now. South Korea is on the cusp of elimination from the 2022 Qatar World Cup after suffering a 3-2 defeat against Ghana on Monday. To talk more about it, we have joining us on the line now Paul Williams, a football journalist and the founding editor of the Asian Game. He's in Qatar and he was at the Education City Stadium for the game. Paul, hello and thank you for connecting with us again. My pleasure. Thank you for having me back on. 
So we connected with you yesterday for Monday Sports Roundup, and we weren't sure whether we'd be calling you again today, but after the roller coaster ride we experienced, we just had to talk about it in more detail. Career down, 2 0 at half time. Then looked like a glorious comeback was on the cards after they got back to 2 2. But then Ghana scored another to make it 3 2, and that's how it ended. Paul, what did you make of the match? I think a roller coaster is the, the perfect way to describe that match. It was exactly that. Korea started well, um, looked like they were going to be uh, on uh, on top again. Then Ghana scored, scored a couple of goals. Then it looked like it was going to be game over. And then he came in, come on in the second half and, and really changed the course of the game for, for Korea. He was sensational in those first five or ten minutes that he was on, created to um, credit to goals for, for Korea to get them back into the game. And you thought, well, you know, go on and win the game. Now they had all the momentum behind them, but it was just some defensive lapses and um, lax defending throughout the game for for the first two goals in the first half and again for the third that, uh, that cost Korea. And then the final 10 minutes was an absolute barrage and an onslaught from, from Korea. They were pinging in crosses from every which direction to try and get on the head of uh, Hwang Ijo or Cho Gusung, but... No matter what they threw at Ghana, Ghana just repelled and repelled and repelled. And, um, yeah, it ended 3-2 for Ghana. And as you said, that kind of leaves Korea's hopes hanging by a thread a little bit now. Sure. Uh, we talked a little about Ikonin yesterday as well. And you mentioned how he came off the bench and seemed to change the game. He provided the assist for the first goal uh, scored by Cho Gisung. And then he seemed to spark that comeback. Cho scored the second goal as well, becoming the first Korean to score more than once in a World Cup game. Uh, so were those two players the ones who stood out for you most? They were. I mean, you know, it was the decision from Palo Bento to choose Cho Gisung over Hwang Ijo. Um, which I think was the right decision and it was justified in the end because he got those two goals and um, he just provides a slightly different look to the uh, to the Korean attack up top. And yeah, he came in when he came on, the, the, the dynamism, the energy that he provided, the quality, um, that first cross that he provided to, to Cho for the, uh, for the header was exactly what Korea had been missing up until that point because... We'd seen, you know, Kim Jin-soo on the left-hand side, um, Kim Moon-hwan on the right-hand side. There'd been a lot of crosses come into the box, even from a player of quality as Son Hoon-min, but the, cro- the crosses just kept missing their targets. And then with his first opportunity, he came in, King and gets it, <clears throat> puts it on the head of Cho Gu-sung, and, and yeah, Korea get one back, and then it's a completely different game. So he, he changed the game when he came on, and I think it's a... Um, it's a big decision for Paolo Bento now because he surely has to start the game against Portugal. Sure, everyone is calling for Igang uh, to start and Chogi Song to start. Uh, despite Korea dominating position and shots taken, Ghana punished Korea by scoring with all three shots they had on goal. And as you said, it was the defensive lapses which were perhaps frustrating. A final point of controversy came right at the end. Uh, the referee blew the final whistle, even though Korea had just won a corner kick for one last chance at redemption. South Korea's coach, Palo Bento, strongly remonstrated with the referee, Anthony Taylor. Uh, we're not exactly sure what he said, but Bento was eventually given a red card, which means he'll be suspended for Korea's last game against Portugal. What do you make of the referee's decision not to award Korea that final corner and the red card? Mm. It is... It's, it's unusual in some ways because you often just see the, the referee just let that corner then play out. But 
we, we don't get to see the, the clock at the stadium. It just stops at, at 90 minutes. We didn't know how deep into injury time it was. I was told that it was, you know, already past the allotted 10 minutes that he'd given. So often you do see that still in that situation that even if the team wins the corner, um, if it's past the allotted time, the referee will still blow the full-time whistle. So um, I can I can understand why he did so. Um on the other hand, is I can understand why Korea wanted to, to take that final corner. But as I said before, they'd, they'd spent the last 10 or 20 minutes before that throwing in cross after cross after cross at the Ghanaian defence and hadn't been able to breach them. I'm not sure one extra cross was going to make the difference. Maybe it would. Maybe that was the one that was going to make the difference. We'll never know. But um, I, I, I think given how the, the game had panned out in the, uh, the 10 or 20 minutes beforehand, I'm not sure one extra uh, corner was going to make the difference. But... I can understand the the frustration from the Korean players, and now mm. that Paolo Bento's suspended, it could potentially be his final act as a Korean manager because we don't know yet whether he'll continue on after this World Cup. Sure, I think for a lot of Korean fans, it was just uh, a little left a bit of a bitter taste, uh, and that's what mm. made it more difficult to swallow the end result. But uh, anyway, uh, that result means that uh, Korea's fate of making it out of the group stages is no longer in their hands. It's still mathematically possible, but it first requires Korea to beat Portugal. Uh, Paul, what else needs to happen for Korea to qualify for the round of 16? Yeah, so the, the first thing they need to worry about is is beating Portugal. The good thing for them is that Portugal won last night against Uruguay, so they're already qualified for the round of 16. So potentially they may rest some players in the, uh, the final group stage match, knowing that they're already through, so they'll give them a chance to to freshen up. Um, you know, there's no guarantee that that means that they're going to have less quality come in because the players who come in are going to be trying to uh, put their best foot forward to earn selection. But um, they may rest some of their, their best players. So that opens up an opportunity for Korea. If they win their game, they then have to uh, hope that, uh, you know, Ghana can take something off Uruguay. Or if Uruguay win, it's only by, I think it's two goals, the margin. If Uruguay win by three goals or more, then Korea need to, you know, win by more against Portugal as well. It's very complicated with the, the permutations, <laughs> but essentially Korea need to beat Portugal. And after that, um, hope that, yeah, the result falls their way. But first of all, they've got to beat Portugal. Um, if they beat Portugal by at least uh, two goals, I think it's safe to say that regardless of what happens in the other game, they'll um, they'll qualify through. Right. There are uh, results calculators online that I'm sure a lot of people will be uh, checking to figure out what the best result is. But at the end of the day, Korea needs to beat uh, Portugal. Paul, do you think Korea will be able to do it? I'd love to say yes, but I think it's going to be difficult based on the evidence of what we've seen so far the last couple of games with Korea their struggles to really put the ball into the back of the net against a very good Portuguese side. I'd love to say yes, but uh, I can't see it happening, unfortunately. Sure. I think they needed to get something out of that game against Ghana yesterday. A, a win in that game would have really set them up and, and probably got them through. Um, I think yesterday's result might have uh, been a bit of a nail in the coffin, unfortunately. Sure, and the players look exhausted as well. Uh, I think they've given everything yeah. into those first two games. Uh, whether they'll have enough uh, for that final game, we'll see. We cling on to every hope for now. It's not over till it's over. That final game against Portugal, Portugal will be Friday midnight Korea time. That's Friday midnight going over into Saturday in Korea. Paul, thank you once again for your time, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thanks very much.
In its Global Economic Outlook released last week, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development lowered its growth outlook for South Korea for next year. The OECD cut its growth forecast for Asia's fourth largest economy for 2023 to 1.8%. That's 0.4 percentage points lower than its previous projection of 2.2% in September. To take a closer look at how South Korea's economy is expected to fare next year and more, we're joined on the line now by economist Hwang Hyun Jung from the OECD Economics Department. Ms. Hwang, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So first off, could you give us the details about the OECD's latest outlook for South Korea's growth for 2023? Sure. The dollar revision to the 2023 growth reflects several factors. The first one is a weaker outlook for trade partner countries, especially in China and European countries. China's zero-COVID policy and Russia's illegal war against Ukraine have weighed on the growth of these countries more heavily than expected, and this impact will continue in the near term. Weaker growth in these countries means weaker demand for Korean exports. And the second factor is higher inflation. Um, Inflation will be higher than previously projected, reflecting more persistent and broader underlying pressures. And this will slash the real income of households, reducing consumer spending. And lastly, the third one is higher interest rates, and the higher inflation will lead to higher interest rates, which will increase borrowing costs for firms and households and debt servicing burdens. This will take a toll on business investment and consumption. So overall, we think that growth has lost momentum now, And we now forecast growth to slow from 2.7% this year to 1.8% in 2023, lower than previous projections in September. Hmm. So global uncertainties such as the situation in China and Europe, uh, the rising inflation and uh, high interest rates are all contributing to this downgraded forecast. Uh, South Korea's Mm -hmm. economy has logged growth under 2%, just twice in 2009, mm-hmm. right after the global financial crisis in, and in 2020 after the outbreak of COVID-19. That was, of course, part of larger global crises. How is South Korea's economy then expected to perform compared to other OECD countries? Well, the Korean economy has performed well during the pandemic, actually, in international comparison. And Korean Korea is expected to remain a relatively bright spot in an increasingly dimming global economy. Korea's GDP contraction in 2020 was actually one of the smallest among AC countries, and this is because Korea managed to contain the pandemic without national lockdowns, unlike many other OECD countries. And Korea's growth is now expected to slow next year in the face of several headwinds, but we still project that it will grow at more than twice the OECD average. One of the reasons why Korean economy will perform relatively well compared to most other OECD countries next year is because Korea is less directly exposed to geopolitical tensions, especially the war in Ukraine. For instance, um, Korea imported less than 7% of its oil and gas from Russia um, in 2021, while the EU imported around 50%. So European economies are currently facing significant challenges from the low supply of gas from Russia and embargoes to Russian oil imports. 
This has already significantly reduced production and investments in energy-intensive industries in Europe, which is not the case in Korea. You mentioned uh, the concerns of inflation earlier. The OECD's inflation outlook for Korea remained unchanged at 5.2% for this year and then 3.9% for 2023. Uh, The high inflation has been a major concern in Korea, of course, although it is lower than the G20 average, where inflation is anticipated at 8.1% for 2022 and 6% in 2023. How much of a concern is this situation and what can or should South Korea do to fight high inflation? Right. Um, The unprecedentedly high inflation actually really harms uh, people and especially the poor because it slashes um, purchasing power and real income of households. So a top priority in the near term should be bringing inflation back to the 2% inflation target as soon as possible. So to this end, the Bank of Korea has raised the interest rates, signaling its firm uh, determination to the public to bring down inflation. Rate increases so far and uh, likely further increases in the future will help re-anchor inflation expectations and prevent inflation from spiraling out of control. Recently, inflation expectations became unanchored in Korea. What we are worried about and what we must avoid is that the Korean economy slips into a vicious wage price spiral where inflationary expectations lead to demands for higher wages, which in turn creates inflationary pressures. Once the cycle gets started, it can be hard to stop. So it is essential to raise the interest rates to re-anchor inflation expectations and bring inflation back to the target as soon as possible. And besides these uh, monetary policies of the Bank of Korea, uh, the government's fiscal policies also need to be well calibrated because high public spending also fuels inflation. So the government should plan for more prudent spending next year, reducing COVID-related support while providing targeted support to those who need it most. All right, interest rates and prudent spending by the government to try and tackle inflation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've mentioned uh, some other challenges that South Korea will face next year, uh, such as China, European countries, and the situation going on there. But uh, are there any other major challenges that South Korea uh, faces next year regards to its economy? Well, yes, there are some other challenges the Korea economy may face next year. One is the microeconomic risks related to high household debt in Korea. Mm. Household debt in Korea has increased rapidly over the past decade and is currently one of the highest in the OECD countries. What is worse is that most of the household loan is linked to variable rates, which means that household debt servicing burden is set to increase as the interest rate increases. And this carries quite significant macroeconomic risk because rising interest rates could lead highly indebted households to hold back consumption, leading to further economic slowdown. And another challenge is the increasing inequalities due to high inflation. High inflation tends to worsen inequality because it hits income harder for poorer households than for wealthy households. This is because low-income households tend to use a larger share of their income for heating and food than high-income households. So Korea has relatively high inequalities among its countries, and which this will be likely be uh, exacerbated next year without appropriate policy actions. I see. So what kind of policy actions do you think uh, is needed to address these challenges? 
So in the short term, um, these challenges can be addressed by targeted supports and programs for those hardest hit by rising living costs and debt servicing burdens. But this measure can provide, well, this, this measure um, well, can provide immediate help. But as mentioned earlier, these support measures should be temporary and well-targeted as far as possible so that they do not exacerbate ongoing price pressures. And looking further ahead, um, structural measures are also needed to address these problems, which have been persistent issues in Korea. For instance, in order to reduce income inequality and co closing the relatively high productivity gaps between large enterprises and small and medium enterprises would be one of the top priorities. Because one of the main reasons for the high income inequality in Korea is a high productivity gap between uh, SMEs and large companies. And also to contain household debt, um, perhaps stricter regulations on mortgage loans may be required for both borrowers and lenders. For instance, Korea might consider introducing a ceiling on the share of floating rate loans in total bank loans. Um, recently, um, we published our biennial report on the Korean economy called the OECD Economic Survey of Korea. Mm. And in this report, you can find a more detailed analysis of the challenges facing the Korean economy and recommendations for addressing them. Sure. It sounds like delicate management is perhaps needed to ensure uh, healthy growth over the next few years. Uh, mm -hmm. Taking a look at a bigger picture, the global economy is projected to grow 3.1% this year and then 2.2% next year. But then a recovery is projected for 2024 uh, by expanding to 2.7%. Can you tell us a bit more about how the global economy is set to fare in the next year or so? Mm -hmm. Um, our essential scenario is not a global recession, but a significant growth slowdown for the world economy in 2023, and also still high inflation in many countries. Uh, this reflects a number of negative factors. Um, one factor is, of course, Russia's invasion of Ukraine that sparked energy and food crisis and drove up prices. Another factor is that central banks are hiking interest rates to ease inflation, which takes a toll on domestic demand. And of course, there is also China's zero-code policy that renewed supply disruptions and hit global trade hard and its ongoing property market crisis. Um, but the reason why we still don't expect a global recession next year is because there are a number of factors mitigating economic headwinds. For instance, many households and firms still have accumulated savings which provides some scope for maintaining private spending. And also some policy measures are being taken to boost investment, such as the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act. But in overall, so we are, we are um, now forecasting that global GDP growth will be 3.1% in 2022, around half the pace seen in 2021, mm. and to slow further to 2.2% in 2023, well below the rate foreseen prior to the war. Sure. So uh, finally, there was another interesting quote from the OECD that said growth in 2023 is strongly dependent on the major Asian uh, emerging market economies who will account for close to three quarters of global GDP growth next year, with the United States and Europe decelerating sharply. Can you elaborate more on this uh, prediction? Um, yes, we project that major Asian um, emerging market economies will account for close to three quarters of global GDP growth uh, next year, as you mentioned. And this reflects that there, uh, there are 
um, projected um, steady expansion and sharp slowdowns in the in the U.S. and Europe. For instance, India and Indonesia are projected to be relatively resistant to global headwinds next year, uh, helped by their exports of commodities such as oil, gas, and minerals. We also assume a gradual removal of restrictions um, from around the uh, well, the COVID-related restrictions from around the second quarter quarter of next year in China, which will help the country mildly rebound. So overall, we project the major Asian emerging market economies will collectively account for close to three quarters of global growth next year being the main engine of growth. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you for walking us uh, through all that. We've been speaking to uh, Huang Hyunjung from the OECD Economics Department. Thank you once again for your time. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index fell 29.59 points, or 1.21% on Monday, ending the day at 2,408.27. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also fell, losing 15.66 points, or 2.13%, closing the day at 717.90. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 16.51 against the dollar, ending the day at 1,340.21. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. We continue on now to our daily segment, Korea Trending, looking at some of the other news headlines that have been trending online in Korea today. And for that, we have with us Diane Yu to bring us those stories today. Diane, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, jang It's good to see you. Okay, so what topics do you have for us today? First, we'll take a look at the newest updates on New Zealand's suitcase murders as South Korea handed over a 42-year-old suspect. Next, we'll change our angle a bit and find out who is the newest member of the KBS program, Two Days and One Night. And we'll end with Hawaii's Mauna Loa volcano erupting for the first time since 1984. Okay, so as you said, we start with an update on that uh, grim murder case involving two children Mm -hmm. found in suitcases in New Zealand. Can you tell us more? South Korea has extradited a woman of Korean descent to New Zealand two months after she was arrested over her possible connection to the bodies of two deceased children that were found in abandoned suitcases in August. The the 42-year-old is suspected of fleeing to South Korea in 2018 after allegedly killing her then 7-year-old and 10-year-old children in Auckland. South Korea's Ministry of Justice has announced that the woman was handed over to New Zealand authorities on Monday evening at Incheon International Airport, along with unspecified evidence on the case. In its statement, the ministry said, With the extradition, we hope that the truth of the case, which has gained worldwide attention, will be revealed through the fair and strict judicial process of New Zealand. Yes, despite the investigation involving uh, more than one country, which can sometimes lead to delays due to legal steps and procedures, understand that it ended up being quite a swift operation. Mm -hmm, That's right. So this case is a rare occasion as the whole process from investigation to extradition only took about three months. The Justice Ministry said this case is going to be the epitome of effective international cooperative investigations. Cooperation began when the police arrested the woman in the southern port city of Ulsan in September after a domestic court arrest warrant was issued at New Zealand's request. And after she was caught, a formal request for her 
extradition was submitted. And just two months later in November, South Korea's Justice Minister Han Dong-hun issued the order to hand over the woman after the Seoul High Court approved her extradition on the 11th, saying that the woman had agreed in writing to be sent back. Okay, so we know the suspect was taken to Incheon International Airport mm-hmm. where she was handed over to New Zealand authorities. Right. What happened next? Detective Inspector Tofilao Fa Amanuia Vaiula of County's Manukau Police said that three New Zealand police officers traveled to Korea to transport her back. The woman arrived at Auckland Airport this afternoon and was then taken to the Manukau Police Station. He added that the suspect is expected to appear in court tomorrow without giving out a detailed time. Yes, there are still a lot of unanswered questions in this very sad case. Mm-hmm. However, uh, hopefully we will learn more soon now that she is uh, back in New Zealand. Right. Let's turn to our next trending story. And it's some news from the entertainment world, right? Yes, it comes from our own station, KBS. It's famous reality variety show Two Days and One Night, or Ilbagir in Korean, has announced its newest and youngest member, the singer and actor Yu Son Ho. According to an official, Yu joined the program season forecast for his first episode, which finished recording on the 25th of this month. The program has been airing with five members since May of this year after Ravi, a Korean rapper of the group, Vix left the show after two years and four months to serve in the military. Now you will fill in the sixth member spot. Okay, so can you tell us a bit more about this newest and youngest member for mm-hmm. our listeners who might not know much about him? Right, so you first became known to the public when he appeared and on the local cable channel's reality talent competition show. He was a trainee at Cube Entertainment at the time and gained popularity with his cute looks and young age <laughs> with nicknames like Baby Chick and Five Meals a Day as he was such a big eater. <laughs> From then on, he developed his career as an actor through dramas including The Great Shaman, Kadoshi, and most recently, The Queen's Umbrella. Yes, and aside from that, he's been on uh, variety shows as well, right? Right. Uh, so it's not right. So it's not his first time appearing in variety shows. In the basketball reality program, he showed his talent in the sport and his sense of humor and received a lot of love from the older members of the show. That's why there's a high expectation for him to join Two Days and One Night because the rest of the members are also older than you with the big age gap. The program's first episode featured featuring Yu Sun Ho is slated to air in December. Yes, I'm sure he'll fit in well and he will be a big hit with the fans. Yes. Uh, let's turn to our last story of the day. What do you have for us? The world's largest active volcano, Hawaii's Mauna Loa, has erupted for the first time in nearly 40 years. According to the U.S. Geological Survey, the eruption began at approximately 11.30 p.m. local time on November 27th at the volcano's summit caldera inside Hawaii Volcanoes National Park. In the agency's advisory, the volcano alert level and aviation color code were elevated to their highest level, warning and red, from the previous advisory and yellow. Okay, can you elaborate on the advisory released by the U.S. Geological Survey? What does the alert level warning and red mean? So both are designated according to the agency's level of concern so that public safety and emergency managers, individuals and families and businesses can take appropriate steps to keep the community safe. First, the word designation is the volcano alert level. It reflects the danger the volcano poses to people on the ground and infrastructure, and warning is used when hazardous eruption is imminent, 
underway or suspected. Mm. And as for the color, it's the aviation color code designed to rapidly communicate to pilots, dispatchers, and air traffic controllers the threats posed to aviation by restless or erupting volcanoes. And red here gives a warning that there is a threat due to volcanic ash. Okay, so then are people living around that area safe? And will people be able to fly in and out of that region? The agency said though the lava is flowing down on one side of the volcano, the eruption will remain in the northeast rift zone and is currently not threatening communities. Mm. And the National Weather Service in Honolulu said a trace to less than one quarter inch of ashfall could accumulate on parts of the island. Ash can cause damage to buildings and vehicles to pollute important supplies such as water, vegetation, and electrical systems. The Weather Service also warned people with respiratory illnesses to stay indoors so that they don't inhale ash particles. The U.S. Federal Aviation Administration is, quote-unquote, closely monitoring the volcanic eruption and will issue air traffic advisories once the size of the ash cloud is determined. So passengers with flights to nearby airports should check with their airline for any itinerary updates. Indeed. We hope everyone in the region stays safe. Mm -hmm. Okay, we'll wrap it up there for our career trending segment. Thank you for those stories, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Jiang Our guest today for Touch Basin's Hole is a young basketball player who comes from a long list of basketball players in her family. Uh, she's uh, played in the WNBA with the Los Angeles Sparks uh, before, before being drafted in the Women's Korean Basketball League in September this year. She joins us now via video to talk about her journey to Korea and her love for the game. Korean-American point guard Kiana Smith of the Yongin Samsung Life Bloomings is with us now. Ms. Smith, hello and welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Yes, it's great to have you with us. Let's uh, talk about your personal background first, because I think it's uh, really interesting. As I mentioned, you come from a basketball family. Your grandfather played for the Milwaukee Bucks of the NBA. Your father is currently a college basketball coach. And your brother is also a pro basketball player as well. So perhaps you were destined to play the sport. But... uh, did it feel that way growing up? Was this the path you were always going to go down, do you feel? Um, when I was younger, I didn't necessarily feel like this was my path. I think my parents and my family never pressured me to play basketball. Um, it would just so happen that I wanted to play to hang out with my brother and his friends. Um, and then I fell in love with it from there, so... Right, so it wasn't something that you enjoyed when you were younger, but as you played your brothers, I'm guessing you found that you must have had a talent for it as well. Yeah, yeah, it sort of came naturally to me. Um, when I was that young, I found it like just fun and easy, and um, I was pretty good at it. So I just kept on going, and then it led to where I'm at now. Right, and you said there was no pressure from your father or from your brothers to keep going. No, no. My dad always told me, you know, if you didn't want to play basketball, it's fine, just as long as I commit to something. And I actually played volleyball for a while, so they thought I was going to be a volleyball player. Um, But it just so happened that basketball was my route. 
Okay, so uh, I guess it was in your genes. You couldn't deny it. Uh, but that's right. only one side of your family, though. You were born in California. Your father's American, but your mother uh, is Korean. Uh, what did she think about you playing uh, basketball? Yeah, I mean, obviously, being my dad's wife, she's been a basketball wife for a long time. So um, she loved the idea of me playing basketball. I think when I, uh, I was younger, she wanted me to, like, dance and do more on the, like, girly stuff. But, <laughs> um, yeah, she, she loves it, and she's one of my biggest supporters now. Sure, okay. Uh, I'm still curious about your uh, life at home. How much, then, of a sort of Korean culture and language uh, did you have around you when you were growing up, uh, seeing as your mother was uh, Korean? For example, uh, were you raised on Korean food? Yeah, a ton. My grandparents were always around, um, so we ate a lot of Korean food. Every Christmas Eve, like, my whole Korean side would come to our house, and we'd eat a ton of Korean food. Even my mom would cook Korean food for my dad's players, so they loved it. They loved Kaibi specifically, uh, uh, so yeah, a ton of Korean food. I, I always get mad at her for not teaching me the language when I was really little. Um, uh, but I've always heard it, her speaking to my grandparents and my cousins and stuff like that. So I've always been around it. Okay. I see. So, uh, as I mentioned, uh, you played one season in the WNBA for the Los Angeles Sparks this year, but then in September you signed for the Yongin Samsung Life Bloomings in Korea. Can you... Tell us a bit about the story behind this decision to come to Korea. Yeah, so in the WNBA, um, our season is in the summer. And then in the off-season, most girls decide to play somewhere overseas, whether that's Korea, Australia, Europe. Um, and while I had a lot of offers from like different countries, Korea just made the most sense for me. Um, I wanted to learn more about my culture. Obviously, I have a really deep connection with Korea and um, being that my, I'm half Korean. So yeah, Korea was just the perfect place for me to come play and get better for my second season in the WBA. Right. So it seems like the connection uh, that you had uh, with your mother, wanting to discover your family roots as such was what uh, drove you uh, a lot to come to Korea then. Right. Exactly. Okay. Uh, had you spent much time in Korea before? No, so this was my first time out here, um, and thankfully, like, I got to bring my grandmother back with me, and uh, my mom came, so we got to explore a little, and I got to meet some family, um, again, from when I was really little, uh, my uncle that lives out here, and his wife and family, so it was just, it's been amazing so far. Sure, were you nervous at all coming to uh, a new country, a new league? Uh, even if it was your mother's home country and even if you were coming, I guess, uh, with your family? Yeah, absolutely. It was um, definitely nerve-wracking just because I'm so far away from home. The time change is different. And, you know, you never know how people are going to accept you. And um, But everyone's been amazing, especially here at Samsung. They've been, treated me amazing. And um, I love my teammates and the coaches. So it's been fun so far. And you said you came with your mother. She must have been excited that uh, you were choosing to come to Korea uh, for some time as well. Yeah, she's super excited. And it's funny because my grandmother, uh, throughout my whole basketball career in the state, she's never really followed basketball. But now that I'm out here, she'll call my mom about all the games because she can understand um, 
all the articles and that my uncle sends back to her and the game. So she, she's super into it now. So it's actually pretty cool. Okay. And uh, moving to Korea, does she have any uh, advice or pearls of wisdom about uh, living in Korea? What did she, what did she tell you? Um, she just told me, you know, just whenever I have an off day, explore, like, you know, just um, really enjoy the months that I'm going to be here. Um, Cause it's like a once in a lifetime opportunity that I'm able to live in another country. And, you know, I found it to be really safe. So they taught me how to use the subway and everything like that. So it's, it's been fun. Okay. Let's talk a bit about the basketball as well. How have you found uh, life with the uh, Blue Minx team and the life in the WKBL? Yeah, it's been fun. It's been an adjustment. Um, it's a different style of basketball than from the States. So um, it's been tough adjusting to that, but I found it to be fun, challenging, and um, my teammates are super helpful and my coaches are super helpful. So it's been fun so far. When you say it's a different style, what do you mean by that? Um, in the States, it's very much like pick and roll and one-on-one basketball. And uh, we actually have this rule where you can't uh, sit in the paint for more than three seconds. So it makes the game like very more spread out and easier, almost like easier to score maybe. Mm. Uh, and then in the WKBL, everybody's running around. It's a lot, everyone's kind of like smaller. So you can sure. switch more. Um, so yeah, it's just, in, obviously you could sit in the paint on defense. So when you drive by your first defender, you have another defender coming and another defender coming. So it's a, different style of basketball, um, but it's it's kind of fun just figuring out, you know, different ways to score. Sure, and do you think that kind of difference uh, in the game will perhaps uh, help you moving forward as well? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think once I get back to the States, it'll, it'll just make it easier to score. If I could score against, you know, three people guarding me here, then in the States it should be um, a lot easier. Interesting. It seems like you're uh, facing some new challenges here. Uh, I feel some might have perhaps uh, questioned uh, your move to Korea, but I'm sure uh, you'll have had your uh, personal and professional reasons to come. Uh, Ultimately, what are you looking to get out of your time in Korea? Do you have any uh, set goals or outcomes? For sure. I mean, I want to win a championship with Samsung, first and foremost, you know. Um, that's the main goal. And then um, long-term goal is just to play for the national team, hopefully get that opportunity um, to play with them and then represent Korea in the Olympics. Sure. I, I, I saw in previous interview that you mentioned that as well, that your dream is to represent South Korea at the Olympics. Can you tell us a bit more about that? When did you uh, start to think about that sort of uh, dream? Yeah, I think I really start, had to... Um, really think about it when uh, back in the States, I got the opportunity to play for USA's three-on-three team. But um, they told me that if I played with USA three-on-three, I wouldn't be able to play, represent Korea uh, and their national team in the Olympics. So Mm. I had to really make a decision then, like if this is something I really wanted to commit to and it is. It was something, you know, playing for, in the Olympics, representing my mother's country um, and my other side of who I am. That's important to me. So I turned down the offer to play for the USA team 
um, to hopefully play for Korea. Still, that can't have been easy to actually turn down an opportunity to play with the U.S. team as well. Yeah, no, it was a really tough decision. Um, I sat on it for like about a week and a half. And um, yeah, I think I think it will pay off in the long run. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, you know, obviously the U.S.'s loss is a gain for South Korea. I'm sure many uh, Korean basketball fans will be excited to see you play uh, with the Korean flag on your chest one day. Uh, but in the meantime, we'll enjoy you uh, watching you play for the Blue Minx uh, for sure. Uh, what, are your, uh, what are your goals for, for the season uh, for personally? For, uh, you said you wanted to win a championship, but uh, uh, what are your personal goals? Um, other than that, just, you know, uh, Rookie of the Year, possibly MVP, you know, just um, really just playing my best to help our team win. Sure, it seems like you have uh, ambitious goals for you personally as well. Uh, well, it's been a pleasure. Good luck with the rest of the season. Uh, we've been speaking Thanks. to Kiana Smith from the Yongin Samsung Life Blue Minx. Thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you so much. 춤추듯 날린 꽃잎 위로 그대의 웃음 덧대어지면 My name is Son Tejin. You're now listening to Korea 24. We finish up with our closing segment, Morning Edition Preview where we take a look at some interesting features reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers. Um, for that, our staff editor, Richard Larkin, is here with us in the studio. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. Good to see you, too. OK, so we have just one story for today. Yes. So, can you tell us what it's about? Well, we end the day with a heartwarming story from the hashtag Korea section of the Korea Herald. Che Jae-hee's article is about a Korean-born Swedish woman called Karin Jensen, who was able to find her birth mother after 46 years. Wow, so 46 years, yes. an incredibly long time. How did it take so long? Well, the thing is, Karen initially didn't search for her family. She was born in Daegu, but was adopted by a Swedish couple when she was four months old and lived a happy life in Sweden. She ended up becoming a police officer. Only when she became a mother of two children did she start wondering what her birth parents were like. The problem was that she left Korea at such a young age, so she had no memories that could help her with her search. Right, so this... Uh, yearning to get to know her uh, birth parents came later in life, it yes. seems. Uh, but I do understand that she did have something that did eventually help her find the parents. She did. She had her old Korean passport that was issued in 1976 for a one-way trip to Sweden. The passport showed that her name was O-Ok-Hee and that she was born on September 23rd, 1975. It also had the address of the Korean Adoption Agency. It wasn't until 2018 that she found a way to start looking, though. She came to Korea for a conference in Seoul. It was for foreign police officers of Korean ethnicity. There she met someone who worked at the Korea National Police Agency's Foreign Affairs Bureau. The article says that they offered to help with the search and looked through old newspapers and searched the internet to find the centre that handled her adoption. And uh, were they able to find the centre then? They were. Luckily, the centre was still running at the time. They were then able to locate Karen's birth parents with the help of the centre. When she met her birth mother this year, her mother was so happy. It turns out that it was Karen's maternal grandmother that decided to give her up for adoption due to money issues and the fact that her mother was so young when she had her. Mm. At the time, Karen's birth parents were not even married, so there were many issues for them. 
That sounds amazing. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about how the meeting went as well? Well, there were some big surprises for Karen. She was surprised to find out that she has a younger brother. There was also some sad news, though. Her biological father did pass away years ago. The article goes more into detail about the search, and it does look like she's able to have a relationship with her birth mother and younger brother now. That sounds like an incredible story. Uh, for more, our listeners should definitely check out tomorrow's Career Herald. Uh, that's where we'll leave it for today's Morning Edition preview. Thank you for that story, Richard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that's where we wrap up our show for today. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow, so we hope you can join us again then. I've been your host, Kwon Jang-ho, and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. KBS World Radio strives to promptly update our listeners on safety procedures during emergency situations. The following are recommended guidelines to follow in the case of a cold snap. Ensure to keep your home warm, especially if you have children, elderly family members or patients living with you. Those who have high blood pressure or weak heart conditions must warm up exposed parts of their bodies, especially their heads. If you experience extreme chills, fatigue, slurred speech, loss of memory or sense of direction, visit a hospital immediately as these are symptoms of hypothermia. If you experience numbness or paleness in your hands, feet, ears, nose or any tip of your body, this could be frostbite. Take a warm shower. If the symptoms persist, go to the hospital. If you plan on exercising, make sure you stretch sufficiently to avoid injuring your joints. If you plan on leaving your house empty for a long time, leave your taps running slightly to prevent the pipes from freezing. Please check our website at world.kbs.co.kr for up-to-date information and procedures. ABS World Radio.